Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, your podcast bringing you the best in horror films with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. That's our premise. That's the pitch. That's the whole fucking point. If you don't like it, this isn't a podcast for you. Um, but otherwise, I don't know how you would have found it. So you must you must be down with what we're doing. I am Matt Monagle. I'm one half of your Matt hosts. I am joined, as I often am, as I always am, by my uh, buddy Matt Donato. Donato! I've heard you've had an exciting day. How are you holding up over there, bud? I'm tired. Fire alarm okay. went off at five in the morning. Kept us awake for 45 minutes at least as it blared in our ears. Uh, and then I went right to seeing Morbius in the morning. I somehow met the embargo. And now I'm here. I, I, I don't know what here is, but I'm here. That's that's fine. That all feels like you're just setting yourself up for the right state of mind to talk about a, a possession movie, a haunting movie. That's it's good. It's good. This was this was the pre-work. You've, you've passed it with flying colors. Now you're ready to go. I am haunted. And now we talk about the hauntings. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, since Donato has gone method on us today um, and is going to spend most of this podcast staring off into a corner, Blair Witch style, I think it's really good if we introduce our guest who will actually be talking to us about the movie, unlike you, who might fall asleep at any minute. Yes, I think the easy thing to do here is bring our guest in to do the least amount of talking on my side. So... Welcome, Alice Collins, horror journalist and producer. Alice, welcome. Hello. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So, Alice, uh, we always start by asking our guests a little bit about their history with the horror genre. So I hope you've kind of had an opportunity. If you've talked to other people before, you've been on other podcasts, you probably have, have done a version of this. Let's start with kind of anchoring this in your horror experiences. What's the first film you remember, the first book that you read, those early tingling moments of horror fandom when you were like, ooh, I saw something scary and I think I like it. I can tell you all those things. Awesome. Um, so horror has been just sort of a thing for me since the beginning. Uh, my first film that I can remember and that I'm told was my first movie because um, I was three years old mm. and uh, you know, before that, like movies are on in the background, but you're just running around doing your own little thing. And uh, for me, the first time I sat down and watched a movie was Beetlejuice. Mm. And uh, that sort of primed me for ghosts in general. Uh, my second movie was Ghostbusters, which is still an obsession to this day. I've still got all my toys. I got my firehouse playset and everything still. And um, from there, I, I just went on and rented from every video store that we could find, you know, within reason. Uh, any ghost story, anything creepy enough for, you know, that was suitable for children. And then just sort of horror adjacent stuff for many years, but my first real introduction, I feel like into like R rated horror and just sort of more adult, like slashers kind of thing was Halloween. Mm -hmm. I was 11 and uh, I had just moved into a new place with my parents and my dad and I were roaming the blockbuster aisles and there was a videotape and it said Halloween and he picked it up and he just was like, it's time. I'm like, what's the time for? He's like, it's time. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> all right. So I'm, I'm looking at this tape and there's like just Jamie Lee Curtis front and center and way in the back, all blurry is Michael Myers. 
I have no idea what it's about. And I uh, psyched myself out of watching it. I just got freaked out by looking at a picture of Jamie Lee Curtis's face. <laughs> so I put the video in a drawer. And for the next five days or so, I'd go up to the drawer every night, look at it, and like, like mm -mm -mm -mm, not time yet. And then uh, fifth day, I remember very vividly, it was an autumn day, and I opened the drawer, and my parents were out, my aunt was over, watching my brother, so I'm like, okay, let's do this. I popped it in, I'm like, I wasn't very scared, but that was very well done. I liked the atmosphere and just sort of everything about it, like, you know, and I think that's a good one for, you know, first timers, because there's I don't think there's any blood in it. Like, there's, if there is, it's so minimal that you don't see it, or at least registered, at least in my, uh, the way I, I did. So it's like, oh, that wasn't too bad. So my parents got back. Um, I asked my dad uh, about it because I was like, that was, that was really good. Do you have anything more like it? And he uh, goes into his room, into his sock drawer, and pulls out Night of the Living Dead. So a lot of dads. They had porn in their sock drawer. My dad had horror. Nice. And uh, so I watched Night of the Living Dead that night too. And then it was ins an insatiable need uh, to find and watch as much horror as I possibly could. And um, around that time, I also discovered... Uh, horror novels so like i started reading interview with the vampire which i mean i guess that's more of a historical drama that just happens to have vampires in it mm -hmm. but uh i read whatever i get my hands on whatever i could do uh as uh you know things got more sophisticated video game wise uh, i started playing horror games and uh it's just sort of uh ballooned on from there and now uh I'm writing, and I started with a couple uh, just review pieces on a website that I'm a writer on uh, called Infinite Frontiers, and they're out of the UK, and they're this little fan outfit that have been around since like the late 80s, and uh, I uh, so I just, a friend of mine uh, took a chance on me and uh, put me up, and then uh I just started emailing pitches around and I uh, got my little infrequent column at Bloody Disgusting called uh, Trapped by Gender, which is uh, I look at some of the different ways that uh, transgender people who are uh, uh, the way they are represented in, in the way that transgender people are represented in horror. Um, so uh, I uh, have a and full of articles there uh, that'll come up whenever. Uh, I've got one coming up soon, which is cool. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, a lot of my, um, a lot of things just sort of started happening. Like um, I would get, you know, approached by someone just to sort of talk about whatever, like on a podcast or like, hey, we need an article or something and so I, i'd write mm -hmm. about it and then eventually that became can we interview you uh for this documentary and then uh, eventually it became can you help us produce this you know uh and so now after 
30-some years. Uh, I do the writing thing. Uh, lately, more often, though, I have been putting a lot of my energies into making things. So I, I helped to associate produce, and I helped compose some of the music for a revenge horror movie, I'd call it, called Fontaine and the Vengeful Nun Who Wouldn't Die. Um, I like that name. Oh, it's great. It's a fun movie. My friend James Dean sold all of his possessions almost, uh, got down to a smaller apartment, and used all of the money he could to fund this film. So he did. And it's now out. It's on Tubi and Amazon. So that's wild. And uh, the thing that's taking up the majority of my time lately is the mental health and horror documentary um, on which I am producer, assistant editor, PR management. I do some, <laughs> I built and run the Discord on there. And then if there's any other random stuff that's needed that I can fill, uh, I do so from there because I got a lot of uh, just random experiences that aren't even like horror related. Like I did a lot of theater in high school and then I also did like, you know, I learned how to edit audio uh, and video from just finding like about like, I think it was 10 years ago. I just found a Craigslist ad for a local program uh, who were, who uh, were just looking for uh someone to edit their commercial so i did that for 50 bucks and that taught me basically just sort of yeah let's here's how the flow goes with all the editing and mm -hmm. all that and uh yeah so got all sorts of random things so whatever is needed on over at that dock i'm there and uh throughout all that time i've been watching horror movies and uh yeah that's about it well, I should say, in the interest of full disclosure, that this is a uh, represented from all sides of the um, mental health horror documentary because you're a producer in about seven other hats. Mr. Donato here is uh, is featured as one of the interviewees, and I am a backer uh, because I believe in the project. So we've got a nice little every element of, of the documentary, I think, <laughs> is represented here. Go check it out. Um, definitely start by following uh, on social media the account because they'll let you know as updates and clips and snippets of new interviews become available. It's, it's really cool stuff. Join the Discord. I never joined the Discord, Alice. I'm sorry. I don't really yeah. understand Discord. I'm an elder geriatric millennial, so that's all very confusing to me. Uh, that's okay. I uh, was sort of learning as I went along while building the Discord. Um, okay. It's just like chat rooms is really all, all it is. Yeah, but there's different there's different emojis and stuff. It's just it's just weird. I I popped into one one time and I was like, this is this is where I draw the line in the sand. I I remember ICQ and I got out at Discord. That's the that's my particular journey. Well, let me ask you a, a little bit about kind of your your um, experience with horror because you talk about uh, starting with you know first your first real true horror film was Halloween, yeah. but you talk about starting to fall in love with uh, with Beetlejuice and with Ghostbusters when you were a little younger. Yeah. Um, does that mean that like you're anchored in horror comedy? Because I find a lot of people that start in kind of like the horror slash comedy space that's that's their that's their nest, right? That's what they keep going back to. I love horror comedies. I'll go back to Tucker and Dale quite frequently Beetlejuice and obviously Ghostbusters are ones I watch quite a bit. Like I'll like I've made little personal fan edits 
of Ghostbusters for myself to try to make the ultimate version of the film. So I'll put all the deleted scenes back in there based on a script I can find online. Mm. Um, but the horror film I do go back to the most overall when I'm just having a hard time is the first Silent Hill movie. Oh. I think I've watched that more than I've watched any other film because there have been days where I'm just like, wow, everything's feeling pretty bad. So I'll put on, I'll put that on and like, you know, it's, it's pretty bleak, but there's just something in it that is comforting to me. And I, there, there, there's a lot I could do to talk about that, but I'm not here to talk about that one because Silent Hill, like, like I was saying earlier, like video games, uh, uh, Silent Hill is my favorite game series. Oh, yeah. Hands Amen. down. Yeah. And uh, so that's why I, I tend to come back to quite a bit. And then um, I think that, I think it's like, you know, the family really that draws me into that one. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. definitely comfort in bleakness, you know, like sometimes when it depends what kind of mood I am in and what I'm searching for. But like the horror comedy is definitely a comfort for me. I've mentioned that a lot in the podcast. Like I think I started myself being scared so much that I found comfort in the horror comedy and to be like my entry point. But uh, I mean, there's just a special kind of uh, feeling sometimes when you just want to see that bleak thing. You just want to see that like, you know, there is something maybe even scarier out there what you're experiencing. I think that that's where that bleakness comes in of watching a horror movie that just overtakes what you're feeling at the moment. And suddenly it's like a distraction almost. Yeah. Um, I totally feel that I've said in the past, you know, like things may be bad right now, but at least I'm not getting my head punched off into a dumpster, like Mm -hmm. Friday the 13th part eight, you know, at least Jason's not doing that to me right now. That was definitely a thought I had uh, growing up. Um, and another thing was uh, the survival aspect of it all. Because you're seeing these people go through these horrible experiences and coming out the other side, probably and most likely a little worse for wear, but they still survive it and they'll get through it. Um, Scream is a huge one for me because of that aspect specifically with Sydney. Um I, that that has just been really cool to see just sort of come out of that series over the years as it's uh, evolved. And you picked, I don't want to talk about the film too much because we're going to do that in just a minute, but you did pick um, kind of a found footage film mm-hmm. and you talk about your relationship to, to video games. Is there sort of like a, a, web 1.0 new tech kind of component to filmmaking because horror in video games horror in the found footage genre they kind of use a lot of the the same aesthetics and like Mm -hmm. the blurring of the line between participant and viewer is that something that you're drawn to definitely um if i can get myself completely just inside of a horror film where i am just there and nothing else around me is even you know registering you know like when you're in a movie theater I know I've found something that that's uh, that's great for me. Um, uh, one thing I love is how the video game side of horror has more adopted a lot of the found footage stuff, like uh, with the Blair Witch game and Outlast. Mm-hmm. Um, those, you know, have very prominent like video cameras. You'll have a lot of uh, 
lot of grain, you know, you'll have a lot of, um, you know, night vision, stuff like that, that you can't, stuff you're, you're not going to be seeing in, you know, pure darkness without your little thing. And, um, one thing I really love about found footage is you can hide a lot of, uh, effects within that film grain. Um, cause that's one thing I've noticed a lot with like a lot of the 4k or just like 1080p releases of like eighties horror films in particular is the film grain from like when I rented it as a kid on VHS really helps add to the atmosphere because, you know, it is hiding, you know, you can see where the latex is on somebody's neck right before they're about to have, you know, uh, that have it cut, you know, or you'll see, you know, the, like the classic, uh, you know, uh, thing where it's like, oh, I can see the zipper on their outfit over there mm -hmm. of the monster. And uh, I, I love how, you know, uh, found footage will use older film, uh, like, you know, or at least try to emulate it uh, in, in in uh its execution uh so that that is one thing I, I really really am into is just sort of the blending of uh the genres um and mediums uh in general i i, I myself like <laughs> i like my video games and horror 100 percent. like I, I i am drawn to survival horror video games but I had an Oculus for a little bit and <laughs> I couldn't bring myself to do like a horror VR experience. And like the only one I did was this dumb promotional, like little VR experience for the child's play remake where like you're mm -hmm. in the toy store and like Chucky's like running around around you. And finally he like jumps on you. But like even that was like hard to bring myself to do like as much as I love my horror, as much as I love the movies, the video games, everything about it. Like VR has been the one thing that I still haven't really like officially conquered yet. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It, I have I have an Oculus, too. Uh, I have an Oculus Quest too, uh, and I I have I have been um, scared by a lot of horror movies over a number of years, and there's been nothing like playing an immersive VR horror game with omnidirectional sound. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you can hear something behind you and you can tell if it's to the back and to the left or something. And um, that has been just some of those horror games. Oh, like even something as something I played like a bunch is Resident Evil 4. And there were, they made a complete and total remake for the Quest 2. And it's like you're in game and it's really smooth and it's just like even a game I've beaten dozens of times can still give me a scare with a VR headset. And, um, yeah, I, oh, I love that. They had the, uh, just everything they, they did with that. That was actually my, um, the reason I decided to, uh, get a VR headset was for the Resident Evil 4 remake because I, I knew I was just like, yeah, this one's going to be fun. We're going to scare the crap out of myself. Let's just, let's go. I'm yeah, I, ha I have to admit, I uh, my brother has an Oculus as well. And he, can, he, one time when I was visiting for the holidays, he was like, oh, you got to try Resident Evil 7 in VR. And so like I put it on oh and then immediately God. I was like, nope, fuck that. 
It's like, thank you very much. That's way the hell too much. Uh, I was getting motion sickness just playing like Skyrim and shooting arrows. And so mm-hmm. um, God bless the children out there who can play a VR horror game and take their headset off and be like, that was amazing, but it's just gonna, that's gonna hasten my demise, man. That is a, that's too much tech. That's where I draw the line. Discords and VR there. I really am a geriatric millennial. I I mean, I was going to say just playing even until dawn and there's like one or two really good jump scares in that. And it's, it's it's not a found footage game. It's like playing a movie. And for those who don't know what until dawn is, but it's very good. And, there are one or two times that they emulate a jump scare where a ghost or ghoul is jumping into the camera and it like goes right to the screen. And like, I'm just playing it like by myself in the dark at home. And just even that little bit got me to jump so high. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. in a good way, in a good way. Cause like I respect it so much and it's a great little scare in a video game, but yeah, no, like VR again, like I resident evil seven. No, thank you. I don't need to yeah. hear all the shit behind me and the, the rustling and not. No. Yeah, Hard you, you don't want to hear. Oh no, the, where are the bakers? Where are they? Right, mm-hmm. no, they're gonna get me. Yeah, until dawn is, a, is a, it's another one I love. That is a fantastic horror game, and it's almost more like an interactive slasher mm-hmm. more than it is like a traditional like Resident Evil kind of say grandma kind of thing. Because you know, there's a lot of there are there's a lot of scripted events, and Larry Fessenden did such a fantastic job. On, uh, like that was one of the reasons I got a PS4, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that and Resident Evil Seven were the reasons I got that. I find I found over the years that uh, the way to get me to buy a new console is to have a Resident Evil game that the others won't. <laughs> like I got my first PlayStation solely because of Resident Evil and Resident Evil Two. I got a GameCube solely because of Resident Evil Four, and so on. <laughs> yeah. And I think when we were playing Until Dawn, we all looked and said, that creepy guy, he's going to win an Oscar someday. Yeah. <laughs> we all knew it. We all could tell. And also, good Wendigo horror. I mean, like, there's, like, mm-hmm. for all the movies that we're lacking in the Wendigo genre, Until mm-hmm. Dawn does it pretty damn good for a video game. Fezenden yeah. likes what Fezenden likes. What can you say? <laughs> it's very, very true. I did the uh, editing on the Fessenden promo for the mental health and horror doc recently. And um, I was going through, uh, you know, some of the B-roll to see what I could get to fit in there. And I was just like, Oh, when to go? Cause I hadn't, I hadn't seen that one. And I was just like, Oh yeah. Until then, yeah. Fessenden likes with Fessenden likes. Yes, very much. Well, before we talk about the film, I want to ask a little bit too about, you know, you talk about some of the writing that you've done and the the perspective that you've brought to kind of like explorations of, of gender and horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious how you feel we're doing with that in the year 2022, because I feel like we're starting to see more critics, um, more prominent transgender critics that are writing about it mm-hmm. and that are getting prominent bylines talking about it. Uh, more films that are, you know, embracing trans representation sort of head on. Um, There's always more that you can do, I know. But I, I, some of the stuff that we see now, you think 10 years ago, we might not have, you know, I think of some of the really amazing writing somebody like Harmony Colangelo's done on Sleepaway Camp, right? Mm -hmm. Which has really changed how I approach that film and how I think about that film. So as someone who has been in that space for a long time, has written about that space, are you feeling mm-hmm. optimistic about horror in 2022 or are you feeling pessimistic about horror? Where are I, you at right now? A little bit of both. Okay. Uh, so I started writing about trans horror around 2018 
maybe 2019. And uh, I haven't, hadn't noticed many trans critics out there. Um, so uh, as it is even from then to now, it is vastly changed. Um, Harmony is fantastic. Uh, Harmony's article on um, on you know the way that um, Silence of the Lambs has been so you know um, pretty damaging to the trans community because mm-hmm. a lot of people will think either Buffalo Bill or they'll think of Norman Bates when they when they think of trans war and even then like Norman isn't even trans Norman has dissociative identity disorder. Um, so, uh, it's very, um, so within the general public and the reaction to it, I don't have a whole lot of, uh, faith, but if somebody has, you know, their line, their head, uh, more thinking about, you know, what could be the ramifications of this particular trope? Because, um, that there, there's so many lazy tropes, um, involving mm-hmm. trans people and I'm seeing less of them, but I'm also still seeing them used. Um, overall, I feel optimistic about it. I'm seeing a lot more people, uh, trans people involved in the creative process. Um, like myself included, actually, you know, like mm-hmm. I only started producing film about a year ago and uh trans horror has exploded uh since then and a lot of queer horror has um like uh i am not sure if i'm in it but i was interviewed for queer for fear sam weinman's documentary for shutter about queer horror uh to talk about this um and also i have seen like i've uh, like just there, there's a lot of trans horror creators out there who I have seen get releases. Like, uh, there's a friend of mine who just had their uh, movie released on big screen. It's going to be in, like, released physically um, on DVD, Blu-ray, wherever you can get it. Um, I see a lot more of younger generation like people younger than me like i'm 36 and um so i'm I'm noticing a lot of the younger trans people being the ones to really push things a little more forward um like uh there's just just so many wonderful people like kay lynch running the um salem horror fest and Mm -hmm. who is now producing uh as a lyric producer on mental health and horror as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, she's great. And, uh, there, there, there's, I'm, I just start naming a bunch of trans filmmakers, uh, cause I'm seeing a lot more and I'm liking that. Um, I will always be a little critical when it comes to the depictions of trans people. Um, because it's, not been great since pretty much the beginning mm-hmm. um one of uh, a friend of mine and i have been just sort of you know talking back and forth about like you know the history of that 
and it's like you can only find the first depiction of a trans person in maybe the 1930s and that is you know they're definitely trans it's not just like somebody's putting on you know a costume or whatever and uh it's from a hitchcock film called mystery and it was, it was like 20 some years before psycho um so hitchcock mined a lot of mental health issues any of that i wouldn't consider you know being trans a mental health issue i consider the way that trans people are treated uh more of the issue because that'll lead more to you know more depression and anxiety and all sorts of stuff just based on how you know people react to people like myself and others so notoriously progressive filmmaker alfred hitchcock yep uh so i'm always a little reserved in you know okay cool trans person in this horror film played by a trans person and then it's like you know oh they uh almost they that was the the, you know the ending of the film they almost get murdered and that is the entire thing that their character does other than you know like it's like some people will take away, you know, certain, you know, things that they think are good representation and then they'll add something else in there. And I, it, it's a very tough thing. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm optimistic because I'm seeing a lot more, a lot more frequently um, than I did even, when was it, 2019, three years ago. Mm-hmm. Like, a, like during the pandemic, a lot of people have, I've noticed, uh, started working uh, in horror and they're trans. Uh, and a lot of them, like, there's a, one film that was shot during the pandemic that I saw. Um, a lot of people still say representation matters. And I can, I can give you a really quick rundown here for me, myself. Um, I never fully saw myself, you know, in a horror movie represented not just as like a trans person or a queer person, but like just as an overall person in general that is treated well and is not killed at the end, like every queer person typically is. Um, And uh, that is from a trans filmmaker in Australia who is named Alice Mayo Mackey. And she is amazing. She's 17. She has finished two, I think, two full-length features and a bunch of shorts. And uh, I finally, through that, got to see what it was like to feel represented. And that was really cool. So That's amazing. Those are my thoughts right now. I, You know, anybody that... I don't want to talk about this sometimes because eventually you talk, when you talk about horror, you talk about younger generations, the younger generation that I see Alice is the one that you're describing the people that are out there moving boundaries, telling their stories, not, you know, not paying homage to the gatekeepers that have sort of existed. And so it's always, if you're, if you're down on Gen Z, a don't be like, forget all the like, Oh, they're too tough on the movies are going back to the, the, you know, the Hayes code era, whatever, fuck all that noise. There's a lot of really amazing, talented people that are doing great things. I hope we don't brush that aside because they're young or because they're 
they have strong opinions or are idealistic in what they think that the horror in particular or the movie industry is in general can produce. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also just say really quickly too, you know, I, I think there is a little bit of, you know, maybe not overflowing hope, but like a little bit of minimal hope because I think it was like three years ago or four years ago at this point at South by Southwest, you know, like, um, you know, more trans writers were writing about horror and like, you know, I, I was able to read things from a trans perspective, like, you know, that obviously I have never experienced. So like reading that experience and seeing things differently. And so we're at South by and this movie played called tales from the lodge, I believe it was called. And to this day, I believe it has not been released. And I watched it with like, you know, a room full of friends. We had the screener. We didn't see it in an actual theater, but we watched it with friends and it did the, you know, it played into every trope of a trans character and they did the exact, like, we're just going to make the killer, the crazy trans character, uh, you know, tokenization right there. And when it ended, everyone looked around and like, because of the work that people had been doing, like yourself and everyone in that space. And like because of the writers who were writing about trans perspectives, like we had been reading things at that point, like we were able to all look around and be like, Oh, that's bad. Oh no. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not good. And like I said, like, that movie got trashed for like, you know, it got negative reviews. It all pointed that out. And like I said, I still don't think it's been released. And this like, that's not to say that like, you know, it shouldn't be released ever, blah, blah, blah. But like just the idea that everyone had recognized that. And I think 10 years prior, five years prior, like would that have been recognized? I think there's a little bit of optimism in that for me, at least in that one moment. Cause yeah. like, and, yeah. and there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of negative examples too, but like, I don't know. I just, I felt that one moment. I was like, I never would have had that reaction had I not been reading articles like that. Yeah. That, that, that's why I wanted to start writing for, you know, where eventually I landed on bloody disgusting was because I wanted to like, you know, I think the stat is like a 10th of a percent of the population is trans. It's probably more than that, but whatever people do the stats on that it's pretty we're a pretty small um you know group overall and um so seeing movies made by people you know like myself um is really cool because you know i wanted to inspire something i wanted to like at least introduce people to like a trans person in their you know space um because a lot of the reactions that i had seen and growing up in horror because i've been going to cons since i was six i had like a con a year up until pandemic hit so uh that that broke my streak (laughs) but um yeah, so I got a little off track there. Uh, so the reason I started doing writing for Blade Discussing was I wanted to at least, you know, introduce people to some ideas of how, you know, this particular trope is viewed or this particular character is viewed from a, a different lens rather than, you know, the typical ones you will get from mainstream Hollywood or just even indie horror, you know, you'll, you'll get a lot of that because, like, even, like, with... Um, Bloom House as recently as like Insidious 2, I want to say. One of the killers, I think, is trans in that. I can't, I've only heard about it. I haven't seen it. I only seen the first one. So, um, but you know, I have uh, read and uh, so 
it's still a ways to go, but we're getting there. Yeah. Well, let's let's switch from um, delicate optimism about the state of yes. the horror industry to uh, pretty overt pessimism about the residents of Abaddon, New York, <laughs> and uh, a certain hotel that takes place in the middle of their city. So, as you know from the episode title, when we come back, we're going to talk about Hell House LLC 2, colon, the Abaddon Hotel. We'll be right back. Well, thanks, everybody, again, for supporting our show. You know, we really couldn't do this without the listeners. We really couldn't do it, most importantly, without our patrons, because they are the ones that ensure that we continue to be able to pay competitive rates for our writers. You know, we have always erred on the side of slow, sustained growth. And because of the support we get from the people that follow us on Patreon, we are able to do that. We're able to pay our writers well. and We're super excited about it. We suffered suffered through it, so you don't have to. Exactly that. We've been on the other side of things and we thought, you know what? Fuck that. We're not going to do it that way. Um, As always, on this part of the show, we want to give a shout out, recognition, read something from our patrons, see what they have for us. So, Donato, I think you're going to go first. Sure. I will do a very easy one. Uh, We have a new person to the tier, Alex, who has been a friend for a while. And I said, Alex, you're new to the tier, so why not give us something to promote? And she came through with, in her words, exactly... A queer-owned small business for various chainmail pieces. Uh, she does custom stuff, and she's super great. The handle is Metal Morphosis, so literally just at Metal Morphosis Studio, as all the words are spelled. And exactly what she said is what's on the package. It's all a bunch of really cool chain uh, chainmail art and chainmail kind of like products. If that is your thing, that is what Alex has chosen to spread to the people. So go check it out. At this point. Donato, is there anybody on Twitter who doesn't follow one cosplayer, either intentionally or through accidents? Like we all, we all follow at least one cosplayer now. I so I even inadvertently did it because I follow one of my fr- favorite uh, AEW wrestlers and Hikaru Shida, and literally she is a cosplayer, and I didn't even know it. So she cosplayed all these like Resident Evil characters and stuff like that. And I just saw on her Instagram, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that tracks. That's awesome. <laughs> Awesome. So we have a second one today, which is from my wife. So I have the pleasure of reading that. And she says that uh, she and I, me speaking, Matt, um, recently finished listening to the audiobook for Fever Dream. And it, it's a rare instance where it's a horror book um, that was set in Chile. And I read the book, but did not watch the movie. Did not watch the movie, but did not read the book. So she wanted to know, you know, kind of what our consensus thoughts were on the two pieces and if we think it would work for us the other way around. So I'll, I'll start real quick by saying, you know, it, it is, it's an interesting concept for a book and it's very tied to um, uh, uh, things that have happened with like agricultural poisoning and biochemicals and spraying. It's an ecological type horror film, which is at least horror film it's an ecological type horror book uh and i think there's some really interesting concepts in there it does it is a very small story and it is a very small story even within i think it's like a 200 page book it's not a particularly long book at all and so i i will admit that i didn't really like the book although i know a lot of critics um and awards have really enjoyed it so i'm wondering because it's such a narrow scope it's two characters and it's retelling the events effectively of just one day if they are able to visually flesh that out in a way they weren't able to on the pitch. So my take on the film was that they do not do what you have just asked, Mr. Monowell. I don't think they flesh it out. I think 
My, so here's my verdict for my review on what to watch. Uh, Fever Dream is like a rain cloud that threatens on an otherwise sunny day, suspended in its own airlessness to a fault. N you never get the thunderstorm. You never get anything from it. It just kind of looms overhead and just passes right by. And that's the best way I can kind of describe it. Like, they're definitely going for something Malikian. They're definitely going for, God forbid, the term elevated horror, because it's really not much horror. You're, what you're getting is the story between these two people who have met and the events that happen throughout that day are kind of jumbled. The timeline becomes a problem and they do a lot of, we're going to show you something in the future, cut backward, that kind of uh, little like plot play. And I don't think it comes through in the story. I, by the time we get to the climax, by the time we figure out what has happened and how it has actually happened uh, in the narrative structure, it didn't do it for me. Well, there you have it. Do check out Metamorphosis. Do not question mark i mean you know subjective taste do not check out um certainly probably don't check out fever dream the film maybe give fever dream the book a chance if you're interested um you know it won a bunch of awards for a reason and i don't pretend to be the last arbiter of taste but again thank you to alex thank you to andrea even though she kind of has to because we're married thank you to everybody who supports certified forgotten the podcast and certified forgotten the website couldn't do it without you wouldn't do it without you um excited to be on this journey together Back to the show. All right, welcome back. So, as you have already sussed out, because you know how to read episode titles and descriptions on your streaming platform of choice, today's episode is about Hell House LLC 2, The Abaddon Hotel. Now, this is the second film in Stephen Cognetti's Hell House LLC trilogy. In the sequel, we join a community still reeling from the events of the first film. Spoiler alert, a lot of people died. Mitchell, one of the original members of the Hell House crew, is now a semi-successful documentary filmmaker. His film about the 2009 disappearances is the subject of much notoriety, and we actually see him engaging early in the film in a panel discussion about Hell House and uh, the Abaddon Hotel and all the mystery and circumstances surrounding it. But when Mitchell is approached by an investigative journalism team hell-bent on discovering the secrets of Hell House... He soon finds himself venturing back into the place he swore he would never return. This is the second film in the trilogy. Uh, it is a film that I do say, sometimes you're like, oh, it's a second movie, doesn't really matter, you can pick up. You should go back and watch the first film because this is a movie that is kind of directly engaging with the legacy, the characters, and even the form of the first movie in a lot of ways, the actual concepts of how footage is used and reappropriated and recreated. So... We'll get into all of that in a second. Um, I am so this is ready. this is your opportunity to go watch Hell House and Hell House Two if you haven't. But Alice, we're going to start with you. You brought this film to us. This is what you wanted to to talk about on the show. What makes Hell House LLC a forgotten gem for you? Well, I like I said earlier, love me some ghosts, and I also love lore, and. Mm. With the first Hell House, you know, you get a really cool story that just scratches the surface. You know, you get the name of Andrew Tully. You get that there was a cult and there was some deaths in the 80s. And ever since then, the place has been abandoned. And um, now you've got this... Halloween, um, you know, these people who make a 
Halloween haunts, uh, making a haunt in this so-called uh, haunted hotel, which, mm-hmm. you know, turns out to be actually haunted. And um, the, I actually sort of like Hell House 2 a lot more than the first one because of the creative uh, jumps that it takes. And like you were saying, the use of, with the use of media. So, like, with the second one, you're starting the film out on a the set of an investigative journalist uh, sort of like oh my goodness this one's gonna date me but i can't think of anything else there used to be the show on the sci-fi channel called sightings and it was shown like presented like a news program and they'd talk about ghosts and ufos and stuff and they would show it really early in the morning on the sci-fi channel when i was a kid so um it's a lot like that and it like it you know it's you know got a panel of subjects and Mm -hmm. i thought it was really cool how they used the first film itself as a plot point that you've got mitchell the only survivor and the you know the holder of uh most of the tapes um you know the one that uh put it together, put it out there. And now there's, you know, you know, he's made a name for himself. Uh, there's been this horrific tragedy. And now, um, you know, there's still a debate on what actually happened there. Uh, and as, and that, and that's, you know, sort of where we start. And that, really interested me because i hadn't really you know that i can remember off the top of my head seen anything that's like yeah we're just going to take the first film and we're going to put it in universe as an actual real documentary so that that really stuck out to me and uh as we went on i just i liked it more and more um because you know they're like there's more footage in the basement it's in the fridge and it's like but they checked the fridge. No, the other fridge, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, something retconned in there nicely. And uh, I just, I really liked the, the idea of them going in to find tapes from this cult that they had put together in, and then, you know, how it entrapped them and, you know, just the ways that the, the hotel itself works. And, uh, I found a lot of interesting things within that. And that's why I like it. But it's like, I say I like the second one more, but with it's nothing without seeing the first one, you mm-hmm. know? So it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, I still like the second one the best. A lot of people, you know, I was, I was reading a little bit online, you know, when it came out and just like over the past couple of days, just to see, you know, what people have been saying about it and a lot of people didn't like the format change like they wanted a classic found footage and i just sort of like how they changed that up and i noticed that um that you know it just you know was written off uh, pretty much uh so i'm uh, happy to talk about it a little bit more so, yeah i think of it kind of like Watching it, I like films, the sequels that blow the top off of the premise of the original, that kind of like don't treat this 
as something they need to recreate, but something they can kind of revolutionize. So I was thinking about it as I was watching it, comparing it to like The Endless by Benson and Moorhead or The Vicious Brothers, um, Grave Encounters 2. Both are films that absorb and repurpose the original movie in really new and, and interesting ways. So I love what you're saying about kind of the way that that it, that it tackles that first movie, because I think that's really the the best and brightest part of this film is the dialogue that it engages with um, the first movie in. But Donato, I want to I want to go to you too because I know that like movies about haunts are your shit. Like that is that is a horror niche that you own that you have on lockdown. Movies about haunted houses, haunted house movies about haunted houses. So, are you a fan of kind of the the Hell House movies in general? And and um, what do you think of number two specifically? So I'm I am a big fan of one and two. I will say that three goes off the rails for me. Uh, it 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 tries to push farther yet again. And it does so in a way that loses everything we love about one and two. Uh, if you do love one and two, I know a lot of people really don't like two, but I was like, I remember when it came out and I was just like, oh man, like two is just as good as the original. And everyone's like, shut the fuck up. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like literally everyone's like, no, it wasn't. So like, I, I felt like a lone defender the minute like, like two came out and no one gave it any time of day. Um, it two and three were both shutter originals. They were produced by shutter and like, so they lived on Shutter, and I guess they were less lesser seen because one still is the one that everyone talks about. But no, to answer your question, huge fan of one and two, um, and I would be a fan of anything they do after this too. They're, they're teasing a television show they're still talking about. So the Abaddon I, I, tapes, right? Yeah, exactly the Abaddon tapes. So like, I'm in on it. But why I like two a lot, and I won't, I can't say I like it more than one because I just adore one. Like I think one is one of the better found footage movies we have out since it was released. It blends a haunted house atmosphere with everything we want. But two is clever because, number one, as you have both said, it gives us a reason to go back inside the house that is not just, hey, let's do the same blueprint again. Get another documentary crew, have them go in, and we'll just do it the same way we did the first one. Um, does that eventually happen? Yes, because we have to get gratified with that haunted right. house walkthrough. Like, of course, but... In getting us in there, they give us a lot of reason. They, they give us the journalistic integrity going on there where like somebody actually wants to find out what happened. And they also give us the treatment of media and the way that I think about like true crime podcasts and how those are criticized and how there's the exploitation of trauma happening and people selling documentaries based on these horrific acts and actually profiting from them, becoming famous from them. So like that is all the basis for Hell House LLC too. And that like those reasons are why they go back into the house. And then all through that, we get those cool little clips in the beginning too. Like I think there's some really good scares in the one-off clips shown on the interview show where it's like, this footage was obtained by XYZ, XYZ. So like, like there's a great scare where a hitchhiker gets picked up and she's not really talking much to the drivers and she goes in the house because she says that's where she lives. And like they follow her downstairs and they just find her staring back as a ghost at them. And like it's such a quick little portion that tells so much about the Abaddon Hotel. But, you know, like it, it's just laying more groundwork, as Alice said, like the lore is building so well in those first moments. And so I think it's just a really clever way of blowing out a sequel like, and giving it giving us a sequel. that's not the same thing, but it still gives you those scares, because I tell you what, there's some scares in that movie that still get me to this day between um, I want like I won't take up too much time saying that, but like there's two in a hallway, both different kinds of scares in the same hallway that like chills are not even the beginning of it. 
you made this the subject of one of your slash film, the scene yeah. that scared me. Things, I, ju- right? well, I just the, did. Yes. Yeah, so sorry. Yeah. The um, I'm sure we'll talk about the braggadocious douchebag uh, paranormal investigator that uh, tags <laughs> along with the documentary crew who immediately gets off. And I love that so much. Like he's not yes. one of those characters that hangs around. He just gets killed immediately for being an asshole and tempting with like the fucking underworld. But yeah, so that scare that happens right before they disappear that to me is one of like the most enduring scares that I have ever seen. It's just played out perfectly. Oh yeah. I, okay. Mm. That, well, let's talk about that scene for a minute. With the <laughs> yes. Normal investigators. <laughs> Cause like the way it's filmed is so good. Cause it's one shot and it's just, it's very simple with the nooses. So, you know, they come into the dining room and, you know, he pulls out his planchette and then he's got some chalk on him to make his own little Ouija board on a table. But um, right before he sits down, you know, they're panning across the whole dining room so you can see it. And then you see the reaction of, the, what was the paranormal guy? And this here, that guy's name? The, oh, the shit. Um, it starts with a P, I think. It's like a Patrick. I'm looking it up right now. Hold on. All I can think of is the stupendous Yappy for some reason, who's the psychic from Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose in the X Files. <laughs> that yeah. is. Hold on. Hold on. That's a good. Brock episode. Davies, right? Sorry, that is Brock, Brock Davies. Okay, yeah. So, you know, Brock Davies, you get his, you know, you get his reaction, like, "What is that?" And they pan over, and there's new two nooses right there, and and I'm just like. Ooh, that was good because it's like one shot and you know you know that they like you know some pa was running for their life or doing just something just to make those nooses go down by the time the camera you know went back and uh that's just I, I just think it's phenomenal and um like you know pulls out the planchette starts writing on the table and one of the um mannequins turns out to not be a mannequin it's actually just one of the ghosts waiting on them and i really just the first time i saw it i'm like came out of nowhere i expected more to come from that guy and it's just like no you you screw with the house um you uh you tempted it and uh well too bad for you mm-hmm. um yeah so i think that that, that that part is just it's so good when he when uh it's like Oh, it's, it's, it's like it's such it gives a lot of um, weight to what's to come because a lot of it from the first movie like the you know the big scare with all the you know all the people are in the haunt and trying to get out and people are being just you know picked off well this is like it's it feels a little smaller, you know, cause there's less, you know, people involved in it in this one. So, uh, talking about the scares, the scope and scale seems a little smaller. Yeah. Um, it, it really gives more weight to it. Cause you're not sure when the hotel is going to attack. You're not sure what mm. the hotel is even going to do fully because they've already, uh, started like, you know, it's like, Matt here was saying with um you know the couple that found Sarah on the side of the road one of the um one of the people who died at the haunt 
you know, uh, finding her in the basement. And I also thought it was very interesting how they, uh, well, they literally opened up the war by opening up the door. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Because now, now the hotel opens up for people uh, automatically, uh, and because you know Tully needs more for his uh, collection, his collection. Dead, man, Dead Man's collection. Dance. We can go a little Oingo Boingo reference. <laughs> yeah, he needs he needs more people for his ritual to be fully complete because. The, the, there is a little bit of meaning with, you know, uh, Abaddon, the name itself. Um, in um, some uh, versions of the uh, the Bible, there is a demon named Abaddon, and they are one of the first ones to break a seal, opening up hell to the world. And that's what Tully's trying to do. He's trying to open up a, a hell mouth uh, at the hotel itself. So I always enjoyed that little like name of the hotel, and you know that they're like, yeah, we did that on purpose. Maybe mm-hmm. they didn't. Maybe they did. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, that was cool. Uh, and um, another thing I also found interesting that didn't really go anywhere really was just it was a quick mention that the hotel itself was modeled off of hh holmes murder mansion mm-hmm. um so that's why it's very maze like and why it's hard to find your way in and out and i found that part of the lore interesting so yeah yeah and i think well i was gonna say just like really quickly too the the logic sometimes is flawed. And I want, I want to say that just like in oh, the yeah, beginning completely. points. Yeah. Like it's one of those movies where you, you want to yell at the characters because again, to mention the couple that picks up Sarah, the dead girl, um, the dead hitchhiker. And she walks back in the Abaddon. And should I have been driving or been in the passenger seat? I don't care what happens to Sarah at that point. Like I did my duty. Like this girl says she's home and she's walking back into a haunted mansion. Like, I ain't running in after. So like, I do know, um, even talking to Ariel, cause I write a scary scene column, a slash film with her. And like, she wasn't into this movie at all. Like, and for those reasons, she's like, this is basically every wrong decision that a horror character can make. So I, I think that is fair to acknowledge because there is a good sum of that. Um, but to bring up why, like, at least I like it and Alice, I think we're in the same boat. It, it, it's the lore that you talk about that, like, plays such a big part in this. And, like, the lore becomes just built out. And I, I can latch onto that more and excuse some of the more familiar tropes in a horror film if you're taking grand gestures and grand stands to, like, do something more with your movie. Like, like you might need some of those familiar tropes to get through some parts but what you're doing elsewhere and everything you're trying to build out. I mean, you know, they, they say the lake of fire and that's teasing up the next movie itself. So like, they're already thinking about the next movie in this sequel saying like, we must, you know, go to the lake of fire and spoiler alert, hell house three is named lake of fire. Um, so everything they're doing is like meticulous and trying to be done right. And, but they're still giving time to the scares and 
just thinking about the scares that happen upstairs as well. So I mentioned the two hallways. There's also like this really good scare where they run into a ghost in one of like the active haunts still when they're trying to go through these like steel fences are put up with all these mannequins and dummies. And they're like, they turn a corner finally to get out. And one of the dummies is just staring back at them as a, as the real ghost. And you're like, like that shit makes my heart stop. Cause how many times do we go through a haunt? And like, of course we feel safe in a haunt, but cause we should be. But I don't know, like, there's that one time you're like, what if this is the time I run into a real ghost? I don't like Hell House gets that right so well in the first two movies, and they don't lose it in the second movie. And that's what impresses me. You can still scare me with the same setups and same setup types. And I'm still like back at Hell House LLC one with the same fear like that, that, that sticks with me. Yeah, the way they used the clown for that particular sequence like the way they the actor is just leaning against the wall making it look like they're a dummy and they're just blocking and like the characters are just like what the hell then you finally just like it's so robotic almost yeah it's like the arm moves and all of a sudden the head looks down at them and the door just slams shut and you're just like oh we're in we're stuck (laughs) First of all, though, I got to say, well, you know, we're going through a horror, you know, haunted house and, you know, I have never been relaxed for a second in any haunt. It's just like I walk through that front door and every muscle clenches and then I walk out the door and it unclenches. So I don't know what you get off on in the haunted house scene, but it's not for me. Second thing that I want to say, though, is you said something really smart um, a minute ago, Donato, when you were talking about kind of comparing it to the wave of modern true crime stuff. And I didn't think of this until you brought it up, but you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about with the new wave of like true crime and documentary and things of that nature is the filmmaker sort of inserting themselves into the narrative, right? Like one of the criticisms we have of a lot of late 2010s docu-horror and all this kind of stuff is the idea that like, are the filmmakers a little too intimate? Are they making it about themselves? Is this another, you know, kind of serial podcast where it's as much about the host as it is about the thing that they're discussing? And I think that that this film makes that very literal uh, on several fronts about a group of journalists who, uh, you know, make it as much about themselves as about their subject and super duper suffer for it. So I could see this being a film that somebody, you know, if they're trying to like look back and if I were going to, again, it always comes back to college courses for me, but if I was going to to teach a college course about new media journalism, I might include this because that, that like that BuzzFeed wannabe newscast, they're terrible. <laughs> they're fucking terrible, man. Recording everything we do, upload it all online. Give me a break. No, don't do that. And I really, I really like what the film has to say, the commentary it has to offer about that. Yeah, I, I, I think they're a little ahead of the curve on that because I've only noticed people talking about, you know, with more about the true crime stuff more within the past year or, or two maybe because this is this one came out i think in say, 2018 i think yeah. and uh so it, like it was really early on because it's like i'm going through it was either a peacock or paramount plus and i saw a docuseries already about uh gabby petito you know who like there was like Thinking about the turnaround on making that documentary, mm-hmm. it's only been a matter of months since that happened, you know, with, you know, her disappearance and murder and just, I, I haven't even watched it yet, but as I was scrolling by, I'm just like, wow, that is so exploitative because it, 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 it just, 
you, you've already seen it happen in the news recently. And it's like, what are you trying to say with this? You know? Yeah. What context can you possibly hope to offer? Yeah. And it's not even like a, like a finished kind of thing. Like they have not everything is, you know, there's still some questions out on, on that. Cause like, you know, they did find, you know, her murder had gone out into the woods and, you know, I killed himself or he died out there. I don't, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, so I, I do like that. Um, this is just sort of, it's, you could even call this one a cautionary tale. Mm -hmm. Um, just in that respect alone, like even just like ignoring the lore and all that you like all three of the individuals being interviewed at the, and, and for this, uh, TV show and the you know that is our framework sort of throughout um, are all involved in a in a one way or another and uh, yeah I think that is a fantastic aspect I hadn't really thought about that actually <laughs> that's all Donato he's priming the pump yeah. over there today I do, I do some good work even when I'm sleep deprived <laughs> oh yeah you do friend. No, it's it, it that stuck with me the most because it seeing things. I think I might have seen the movie The Haunting of Sharon Tate around then as well, maybe a little after. Mm-hmm. But like there is just this series of exploitative horror movies that take tragedies and try to make them a fun, entertaining horror movie. I think that director did something with O.J. Simpson afterwards as like a thriller too or some shit. And mm-hmm. like that that's how I kind of put them together in a way. Just the idea of like watching them and going. this is just traumatic profiteering that's all it is you're taking something horrible for name only and like you just said have it having a gabby uh documentary already like there's no context you can add there's nothing you can give us except the name recognition and trying to get people to watch it because it is so soon and i i do think hell house llc too does a really good job of that and i think also that a lot of the negativity surrounding it and you know a lot of the unfavorable reviews like they don't mention that and they don't engage with that at all so i do think that was missed as well uh for a lot of people when it first came out and i think at this point too it might be actually seen on a rewatch you know i'd I'd suggest Mm -hmm. that it's something that could be rediscovered yeah i just watched it a a few days ago and i just am now realizing like hey that that does have something to say about that because you know that that's been something i was like i like true crime too um and just thinking like you know you know what's like also from the perspective of a documentarian as well like what's ethical to do in this situation how like are we involving people who were you know part of this are we you know it's just so it, it it's well, no, it's hard. I love it. What you're, well, what you're talking about, though, is specifically like Mitchell being brought back into that house. Like he's being convinced by the, you know, journalistic investigators that he's with to go along. And they're there for their own merit. Like the team that goes in that brings Mitchell is there to break this case and find new evidence. And they're there for the scoop. They're there essentially for the headline, if we want to talk about it in those terms. And like they're forcing Mitchell back into this horrific scenario to basically yeah. relive it like that. That dawns on them, but they don't care because they're in yeah. it for their own benefit. And mm-hmm. that plays on me like that's that's a big play on me. Mm-hmm. That's also a really great way of like, how do you get someone who's been traumatized previously by this back in? And I think, you know finding answers 
to, you know, I mean, Mitchell, I mean, like, wait, wasn't, I don't think, I'm just trying to think of the character, because I know he wasn't, like, in the house really very much, or he was he the cameraman in the first one, or was he just he was. Editor? He was the guy that was editing the foot. I believe he was the guy that was editing the footage and, yeah. and saw on the tape what had happened with Sarah, right? Yes. Like Sarah, yeah. So he's the survivor in that he was never really in any danger. Yeah. 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 So he's the one that sort of, I mean, he sort of did the same thing. If you think about it, you know, mm-hmm. like he used that footage and made a name for himself, but also, you know, tried to do something good that backfired really spectacularly because you know he brings all this stuff to light about what happened and then you have the kid from facebook in the beginning going there to because of a challenge you know and there's always some sort of challenge on social media like go do this Mm -hmm. thing and this and um yeah so he may have you know he inspired people to go there and sort of feed the hotel and that's one thing that you know is sort of the main purpose this is actually where the lore conflicts with itself a bit um is the way it gets people back so at the end um because yeah when, yeah at, like, at the end you know once uh molly and uh i want to say jessica right mm-hmm are tied up and uh Tully presents himself with his uh you know cult to uh to Mitchell. And let's be um, honest, Tully's just being a small business owner. He's just an entrepreneur, man. He's the <laughs> he's the most honest capitalist of the group. He, he really is. <laughs> I mean, he 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 basically funded the documentaries. Yeah. If if you think about it, he uh He's the like, like um, you know the the town official being mm-hmm. interviewed with uh, Mitchell and Brock. Uh, are, he you know turns out to be Tully himself, um, trying to get people in and yeah, just uh, and then then you find out all that that all that old footage too um, with uh, like Alex years before the events of the first film like how he got you know wind of this haunt and how he was able to basically you know pushed because of financial issues into you know getting people into the hotel and um but like i was saying with the lore conflicting um there's one thing where uh you know he, uh, you know, Mitchell has to choose between one of the two and, uh, you know, Molly is dead. Mitchell is gone and uh, we have our main character left to bring the story out to the cops and the tapes. And Andrew was like, you know, we got to have one person out there, you know, bringing others in. But it's like you've also got the aforementioned ghost of Sarah who... Uh, was who brought the other people and so like and then you've got Tully himself who's going out and bringing other people and so it's not like there's like one person even though it's presented that way that they let mm-hmm. one person out to you know you know keep the intrigue going yeah no it holds it. i so i've read that a little bit to just 
if I'm reading that my way, I'm reading it as like you have to go out there and collect more souls for me, but also be like the survivor of this specific event too, because like we need someone to spread the fear from this event to know that I'm not messing around. <laughs> like like one of those scenarios, just like I I did the bad thing and I want everyone to know about it. Like, but it it is. It is like the quintessential they tried to do a bad guy moment, and it's like, well, there's also other people out there. <laughs> like it doesn't right. have to be just her. <laughs> I mean, it, look, it just teaches us that hell is a pyramid scheme. And that's Very fine. Right. I think we, we probably knew that already. Hell is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. All right. Well, talking about, um, you know, kind of the way this movie connects to the first movie, um, the third movie, which I haven't seen, but I know both of you have. This is maybe sometimes we talk about the how high profile movies are for us on Certified Forgot. I feel like Hell House 2 is certainly probably one of the more high-profile titles we'll talk about. Because even if you haven't seen two or three, a lot of people have seen one. It's a well-recognized franchise at this point. Um, so our final, our wrap-up question that we usually ask our guests, Alice, about does this, how does this film get rediscovered? There's three of them. They're on Shudder. Any horror fan worth their salt has seen probably the first one. And, you know, maybe they stop there. Maybe they keep going. So I'm going to modify my last question just a little bit. And I'm going to say... What do we think the enduring legacy of the Hell House LLC movies is, just sort of in general? Does it have the clout to be a top-tier horror franchise? Is it one movie and then a couple of sequels that people may or may not have seen? Starting with you, Alice, where do you think this lands in sort of like our horror pantheon? Well, I haven't... I really like found footage films, and around the, the people who tend to like found footage talk a lot about the first hell house but right off the second two and the third one i i've seen it once i wasn't the biggest fan on like there's a couple of scenes near the end where i'm like okay that's interesting but it's like mm -hmm. they like they're like they, they bring an angel into the mix and then there's like all sorts of wild stuff and like the entire film crew from the first film is like brought back but no you're stuck in the house now even though everybody else who was killed has been brought back to life and can go back i like they they they, they, they went back to the format of the first film um for that one uh rather than you know trying to do something a little different um i mean they definitely like story-wise tried to do something a di little different but um I'd say that it will, it, I think it's an, I'm not sure I'd say it's an enduring franchise because a lot of people won't see the second two films of the trilogy as well made or well done as the first one. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that definitely comes down to what I like about it because a lot of people like the mystery of it all. And they the other two tend to explain a lot of mm. what is going on and a lot of people it's like you know what's scarier in your head is always scarier than what you're told or seen and uh so i want to say yes because i love these films and i have hope for the abaddon tapes but i think mostly as a or franchise i think a lot of people will just be like see the first one and you're good hmm. but i implore others to just sort of go in with a, a you know a new lens you know on it and just uh take in take it in even though it's a little bit different than the you know format of the first film 
it really takes its time to build. It has some good scares. And um, for me, it'll definitely endure. Like I, I, I do go back to the at least the first two uh, quite a bit. Like the first one I've, I've, I've watched easily like half a dozen times. Second one I've seen just as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would like it to be an enduring franchise. That's for sure. And I think a good way to do uh, that is the, what they're suggesting is the Abaddon tapes uh, television series. So you'll have like, a, you know, you could have it be an anthology. Like you could be have because you have already built into the lore of like there is some sort of, you know, social media like, you know, all right, go do this. So you you could have different stories of people going to the hotel and you could expand on a lot of the lore and what has happened. But it's it's sort of definitive at the end of the third film that there's not a whole lot that they can do more past that. So it would have like it would have to be within either, you know, beforehand or like in between films uh mm. the the stories. So, yeah, I'd like it to be enduring, but I'm not 100% sure that overall as a franchise it will. But the first one will definitely be talked about for as long as we can, I think, at least in the found footage genre. It's one of the highlights, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, it's, it's as good, uh, at least for me, as like Blair Witch. Um, didn't scare me like Blair Witch did though. Um, but then again, I was also like, uh, 12 and was fully believed that the Blair Witch was real. Yep. Um, thank you. Sci-fi channel with your mockumentary. <laughs> Several shouts to sci-fi today, uh, between yeah. their morning shows and their documentaries. Donato, are you in agreement? Yeah. Looking at the entire trilogy, I I do agree that it's not one that will be remembered for its whole. It will be remembered for, you know, its parts, let's say not the sum of them, because agreed one is phenomenal, tremendous. I hold it up there as like a perfect kind of Halloween watch with the houses October built. And when Deadstream comes out, that's going to be a really good comparison watch to throw them all together. So uh, like in the pantheon of found footage horror, one stands out and shines like no other of late. Two, I still think doesn't get its fair due. I have it not as good as one, but still as like a really fun found footage horror flip that is a haunted adventure as well. So I, I really hope it gets rediscovered by a lot. But three to me is just kind of so bad that it kills all the momentum that's going from one and two. So it, it, it's it's recommended as a combination for me. You watch one, you watch two, do it as like a one two punch and just pretend three doesn't exist because if you watch all three together, you go out on a sour note. <laughs> um, hmm. But you know, if we are talking again about another property coming out from it, I'm still excited to see what they do because I think Cognetti shows a lot of directorial chops just from these and doing found footage that is very low budget in a way that is still supremely scary. And not many people can say that because found footage, as we know, has a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of bad films. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. I stress that I I stress there are so many because it is quote unquote, one of the easiest subgenres to make. So everyone goes out there and makes one. Uh, Cognetti did two that were a cut above scare wise, almost everything. So he's got talent. I really like what he did in the first two. I don't think the trilogy endures. I don't think the entire franchise endures, but that does not diminish the fact that I think one and two are a really nice little combo there. And really at the end of the day, 
are you truly a horror franchise if you don't have two good entries and then others that you just fight over with other fans? That's kind of like, that's how most horror franchises work. One is great. Two is slightly better or slightly worse. And then three plus are, you know, editorials. Why I think Hellraiser three is actually better than blah, 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 blah. So, all right. Well, hey, that is our show for today. We have discussed Hell House LLC, colon, the Abaddon Hotel. Alice, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know Donato's been trying to get you on the show forever, so it was awesome to have you on here. Um, if people want to learn more about, you you mentioned a ton of projects in the pipeline for you. If people want to follow you on social media, learn more about what you have coming up, what are the, the best accounts, websites, social media stuff to follow? Well, you can find me pretty much every, everywhere as uh, some form of a vamp alley. Uh, that's what I am on Twitter. Um, vamp underscore alley on Instagram. Not on there as much, but I'm still there. Easiest way to get in contact with me through, is through Twitter, though. Um, so those are my socials. And yeah, there is a bunch of stuff uh, down the pipeline. Like I said, just finished uh, and had uh, released uh, the first film I worked on, Fontaine the and the vengeful nun that wouldn't die. And that is out on Tubi as well as Amazon. And if you go to monsterkidproductions.com, you can get yourself a Blu-ray. It's got commentary. It's got behind-the-scenes footage. It's got all sorts of fun stuff that uh, a lot of uh, currently released uh, physical media doesn't have nowadays. Um, And then I uh, did some work on uh upcoming series uh, on shutter queer for fair um i did some archival work uh helping to find uh you know just a lot of um you know just uh like laws and uh a lot of like uh, news footage uh just to put you know more horror into context um yes moral panic out. news footage that's always the best Oh yeah, it was, it was, uh, that one was quite a, quite a task, but very, very fun. Um, I'm looking forward to the finished product very much. Um, and then my current one is mental health and horror, a documentary. And, uh, so that one is, uh, well, pretty much in the title. And I know we have our (laughs) interview with Matt Donato and uh yeah so uh you can find me at Vamp Alley anywhere those are my projects at the moment there's some more but they haven't been announced yet but got more stuff coming so yeah thank you so much for having me had a wonderful time talking with you both yeah of course Donato in addition to your appearance on the mental health and horror documentary where do people go if they want to find out more about your stuff you can still forever and always find me at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. I won't give a spiel this time. Just follow me there and you will see everything that you need. And I would also recommend that you follow. Well, I would recommend you can follow me if you want. Matt, Matt Monagle. Well, I'll, I'll recommend that. That's, people that's follow not you. That's, that, you know, that's somebody else. Whatever. What I'm recommending is that you visit www.certifiedforgotten.com. Check out some of the really awesome film criticism that we have from some really incredible talents in the community. Specific to this, if you want to dig a little bit deeper into the Hell House franchise, Mary Beth McAndrews, now managing editor at Dread Central, um, wrote a piece for us on how Hell House LLC treats the house as a living organism. And it is maybe one of my favorite 
bits of horror writing I've ever seen. I just I think that oh is my the, the neatest piece. It's yeah. so so good. Um, that, that, that's definitely a thing that I, I should have brought up. <laughs> that's okay. I was just thinking that, like the Overlook and Hell How the and the Abaddon. There's a lot of interesting parallels there. Okay. <laughs> well, no. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. They will eventually. They're going to eventually make another Hell House movie because because they've made three and no franchise ever stops at three. So when that happens, Alice, you will be the one we call. We will say, come back to Certified Forgotten. We got a fourth movie. We got to talk about it. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. Donato, do you want to take us out in some kind of weird way? LLC2 is good. Fuck you. (laughs) Who's that aimed at? (laughs) 